0: I, 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 I. We're fired from Cain. Now we ain't got no shame, so we started a pod Chuck Yates Needs a Job.
1: Hey, everybody! Welcome to Chuck Yates Needs a Job, the podcast, and in a first. I'm taking a virginity. Is this true? Is this true? It is. It is true. My guest is Kelly Mitchell. Kelly, your first podcast?
0: My first podcast.
1: Oh, my gosh.
0: Be nice. (laughs) Be gentle.
1: (laughs) Yes, ma'am. Of course. No. So you're really cool to come on. And I'm going to preface this by saying I absolutely adore you. I think you're one of the coolest people in the world. We've chatted on the phone multiple times. We text. We text. This is our first time ever meeting in person. Do you want to tell the story of how we met or you want me to?
0: Yeah, I, I mean, maybe I can try and see if your version's uh, the same. But I think it was after maybe your podcast with Ashley Watt or with Sarah talking about, you know, the issues that were going on in Antina, And I was like, hey, this is an oil and gas guy. But he seems to be pretty honest about some of the issues with the industry. I saw you were getting a lot of flack on uh, – <laughs> on Twitter at the time. So I reached out in the DM and I was basically like, look, I am a left-wing climate activism gay. I was like, you know, just checking all the boxes for the last people to be uh, Digital Wildcatters fans. Uh, but I want to talk. And uh, you responded, which was very nice. And yeah, we've been been hanging out on the phone since.
1: Yeah, it was funny because I think when you sent that DM, I was driving to tell your the next day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're like, hey, can we talk on the phone yeah. sometime? And I'm like, Yeah, I have, you know, 18 hours in yep. the car. Feel <laughs> free to call it, yeah. whatever. So uh so we did it. And uh no, the uh so tell me background. Yeah. What what have you done in your career? because um, you were telling me a little bit earlier and it was cool.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I started working on climate stuff uh, when I graduated from college around 2006. So I worked for where'd,
1: Green. Where'd you go to college? Uh,
0: I went to UPenn.
1: Oh, cool. Um,
0: and all my College friends. Station? No, no, in Philly the oh, uh, whoa, whoa, whoa. University of Pennsylvania. Got,
1: gotcha, gotcha. And yeah, all my friends did I just, were going did into- Did I just accuse you of going to Penn yeah, State? Yeah, you did
0: just, and I live in Ann Arbor right now too. Oh so my gosh. So like got Big Ten rivals.
1: Anyway, in. sorry about that. Uh,
0: no, yeah, friends were going into investment banking, into consulting, into all the things you go to a ridiculously overpriced private university to do. And I took like a $30,000 job uh, working for Greenpeace out of college. So I worked there for about- Eleven or twelve years, all on climate issues. I did. The did like, you
1: like scale, uh, you know, ships and bridges I did, yes, and things? Really? Uh,
0: yeah, I scaled a smokestack in Chicago. So one of the oldest uh, coal-fired power plants in the country it was like right in downtown Chicago. So, along with a group of seven other people, we uh, occupied the coal plant. We scaled the smokestack. We stayed up there a couple of days. Uh they did close the facility pretty soon after. So hopefully we played some small role in that. But yeah, no, I've done the activism arrested. stuff. I've been, been arrested. Oh, that's awesome. I've been to jail. I've been to uh to Cook County. Hard jail. time.
1: You've no, done hard no, time. No, I've not done hard time.
0: I've done easy, easy. I mean, look at me. I've done easy time. People like me don't do hard time in this country. But uh, but yeah, no, I was full on in the the activism space for you know a good long stretch. And uh and then in recent years I kind of Switch gears a little bit. So now I work for an organization that's much, much closer to investigative journalism. So a little more kind of neutral, a little more about the facts, but we're out there doing original investigations into basically misdeeds in the oil and gas industry, uh, political influence by corporations. It's like, my, my little spiel.
1: So tell me something that I would be surprised to hear about Greenpeace activist. Hmm if that's a fair question.
0: Yeah. Um it's a good question. I think uh we hopefully are like a lot more like down to earth than than maybe people would would expect. I think there's there's somewhat of a sense that like we're all kind of wrapped up into this like climate change religion that we practice uh with quite a lot of intensity, and I think you'll find, you know, within the Greenpeace activism community, there are a lot of people who are wrestling with really difficult questions. Who understand like the scale of the problem we're facing. They understand the significance of oil and gas into our current way of life, um, but are still nonetheless kind of looking for solutions and looking for solutions that kind of ease the burden of the transition on on the greatest number of people. So. Uh, yeah, a lot more. I don't know. Hopefully, a lot more sort of humor and levity than than maybe you may find among you know the I like uh, that. people that you see online. I I would hope so at least. Uh,
1: no, I like that. That's because I, I I would not have thought barrel of laughs when I thought <laughs> uh, Greenpeace, but no, that's cool. The so the thing I always like is whenever we talk, I'm always like. Hey, what are your people saying? Yeah, and you're yeah, always yeah, like, yeah, yeah. well, what, what are, are your people? What are yep, your totally. people? Saying, yeah. Jack? Um do you think do you think because my, my issue is I and I've said it on the podcast is we ignore global warming at our own peril. Yeah. Right. I mm-hmm. mean and I, and I believe that's true. And I've always been a data guy, you know, so kind of look at look at data type stuff. I believe we ignore that kind of at our own peril. The thing I've always struggled with, and you and I have talked a little bit about yeah. this offline, is you always hear the science says mm-hmm, this, mm-hmm. right? And, and I've always thought that the observation of the event or the data, anybody ought to be able to see. Now, mm-hmm. we need mm-hmm. Newton to explain the theory of gravity, but we can all see the apple fall off the tree. I'll give you another example. You're sick. You go to the doctor. Okay, you need the doctor to tell you you have an of your spleen or sure, whatever yeah, the case yeah. may be but you can still feel it and so one of the things i had asked you about was shouldn't we be able to in the data just see
0: mm-hmm. global
1: warming mm-hmm. and so i printed these out
0: yeah
1: uh give me two because yeah, i yeah, yeah. printed out double copies oh great so so if this is okay we'll go this to- is
0: really good audio content Explaining charts for you. No, 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 I'm just kidding. The, uh,
1: but yeah, no. So um, actually, that's a good point. <laughs> but basically, what chart number one is, and I'll go this red line here, and uh, we'll 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 cut these into the YouTube. Yeah, yeah. But when you look at this this red line over here, yeah. Which one? Uh, uh, this top one. Okay, this yep. top mm-hmm. one. Because these are the two charts that I've always seen yeah. when it's last ten thousand years worth of temperature. And I've always thought like supposedly the ice science on this was pretty well accepted by everybody. You go do an ice core and it gives you the temperatures and the like. Um, what I've always seen about these charts is, number one, like 91% of the time it's been warmer over the last 10,000 years than it has been now. I called you and you actually said, yeah, that may be true, but the it's the slope. It's the increase that we've seen kind of since call it 1850 or whatever that's the problem. But then I kind of look at that line and I go, well, there have been slopes that steep over the last 10,000 years. And the other chart below this mm-hmm, that will mm-hmm. pop up to basically the same, same kind stuff, of thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What am I missing on these charts?
0: Yeah. So uh, there's sort of, we're looking at two sets of charts here, which hopefully we can have up. Um, so the charts here that you're talking about, these are charts that are pretty widely circulated. And maybe I'll just start by saying like, I'm not, a climate scientist. So I, I'll do my best to kind and of represent my, I, I, my understanding I, I, of this your stuff. people.
1: You'll represent your I'll people. I'll represent my people. I will ask the questions uh, of my people.
0: But uh, is that the, the the sort of problem with these two sets of charts is they don't actually represent the sort of like abundance of data and climate science that are taking place. These charts uh, are basically from a single set of ice core samples in northern Greenland. So they show a lot more kind of fluctuation, highs and lows than we actually saw when we're looking at sort of a global scale because it's a really narrow sample. So I think the, these charts are sort of cherry picked at times to make the point that maybe the the warming that we're seeing right now is not as dramatic or as scary as it should, or, you know, or it should,
1: driven by, or driven or by driven human by activity s- human or whatever, activity. whatever you want to
0: call it. There's another set of charts that I think I, I think I sent you these as well. Um,
1: okay, now we're we're gonna have uh, the, the blue charts we're the gonna fuzzy, fuzzy, edit blue charts. In the fuzzy blue charts. fuzzy uh, blue charts.
0: okay. Now these represent science, you know some of it coming out of University of Arizona, but they they represent, I think the much broader view of sampling, so ice cores from you know multiple locations, modeling from multiple locations. And here, the impact of humans on global temperature rise, you know, suddenly becomes a lot more severe. Where you see that over the past ten thousand years, we've been in a period of extreme kind of climate stability, actually, as a species. So one of the reasons that we've been able to thrive and pos- prosper and have predictable agriculture and all the things that we've we've needed to to get to where we are as a species. And then you have to scroll all the way to the far end. Uh, of these charts to see just a huge, a huge spike in temperature change that, you know, if we were to overlay uh, a chart of, of CO2 concentrations in the atmosphere uh, you would see the impact of human activity much more aggressively.
1: Yeah. Gotcha. So how, the so the so, the two sides, do they fight about this, and we don't really have a common set of data is is you know kind of the the one side sitting there saying, "Well, this is all based on modeling and modeling's never right, and we don't even have enough computing power to to be able to predict these models, et cetera. is Is that kind of the fight, or do you know?
0: Yeah. I mean, my sense is that within the scientific community, there's not much of a fight. So I'll never say, you know, I think the triggering word for a lot of people is like the science is settled. I'm not going to say that. No science is ever settled. But within the climate community, within the science community as a whole, you have the, you know, vast, vast majority, you know, 90 plus percent of scientists who are looking at, you know, the fuzzy blue chart model and saying climate change is happening. And we know the largest driver at the moment is human activity. So now the question is, what do we do about it? And then you have a smaller subset of scientists who are looking at this data and maybe cherry picking examples here, like the the red and blue chart we're looking at, or looking for other places where there's some, you know, slices of uncertainty here and slices of uncertainty there to say, okay, maybe we can pump the brakes on actually doing anything about this problem. So I think, you know, to to whatever extent there is that debate, it's very weighted towards one side of the
1: equation. Okay, because that, that's one of the things I've told myself I want to actually go deep dive. Yeah, and just actually figure out how good is our data, mm-hmm, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, because it it it's wild. I mean, you can literally have two people tweet out, you know, yeah. the 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 ice in the Arctic is shrinking, and then somebody else is like, no, it's bigger, and they both mm-hmm. put pictures in. And you're like, going, <laughs> well, this shouldn't be in debate. Yeah, you know? I mean, but.
0: Well, let me tell you a story about the debate. So this, this might be a long diatribe. but So I was born in 1984. Now, by that time, Exxon had already been publishing internal papers for years saying climate change is happening and it could have, in their words, catastrophic impacts. A few years after I was born, Shell was publishing studies internally, not just whether or not climate change was happening, but actually trying to calculate like to the percentage point, what percentage of global warming is Shell responsible for? That's what they're doing in 1988, right? It's it's 2023. I am here, I've got two kids, I've got some gray hairs, I'm talking to an internet friend. Uh and we're still having this sort of like discussion about, you know, is the science real? And The only thing that's changed in that 40-ish year period is that the science has become more robust, it's become more precise, and it's become, you know, clearer that humans are responsible. And so it's a weird journey that we can have, you know, this like 40-year-long period where everyone from, you know, engineers at Exxon to the best scientists in the world are saying like, man, we got to do something about it. But then the dialogue is still, yeah, like you said, it's this back and forth, equally weighted Twitter, you know, exchange of people sharing pictures of a, you know, Antarctic ice sheet and trying to figure out what's going on. So I don't know how to, you know, especially with, quote, your side of the aisle, like how to, how to bridge that divide. Like, how do we get to the place where we can all say, like, yeah, this is happening. And so the question is, what role is the oil and gas industry is going to play in it? What role are NGOs going to play with it? What role is government going to play you know, versus considering, you know, considering to be like, well, is this even a thing we need to, you know, be concerned about?
1: Yeah. Uh, There's my, my soapbox. No, yeah. I, like the, I like the soapbox, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> As my friend, David <laughs> Ramson Woods says, man, if we could only raise the temperature five degrees on this planet, Canada, it would be barren. <laughs> <laughs> but the, uh, no, so it's interesting you bring that up because I think, I mean, I, like I said, you ignore this at your own peril. Uh, and I really am going to go deep dive into the science because yeah. I do want to, I do want to figure out, you know, is this actually happening? To what degree is it happening? Uh, and I think what the answer is going to be, and I hate to pre predispose this, is it's going to be, well, it's fuzzy. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if we could all live with, hey, this is fuzzy, which kind of seems where we are right now, you still need to have the conversation about, okay, you know, one side says we need to stop hydrocarbons by this date. Yep. And I think the, the answer back is, okay, how are we going to get Africa to do that? How mm-hmm. are we going to get China to do that? Mm-hmm. How are we going to get India to do that? Because as I like to say on the podcast, there's really not a peeing and non-peeing part of the pool. Yeah, absolutely, you know? yeah. And um, the, the the do you have any suggestions from your side how we have that discussion?
0: The global discussion, or, or just, just the like,
1: yeah, because I will say, I, I will say what my people yeah. will say is yeah. all they want to do is shut it down, and all they want to do is just shut down hydrocarbons. But at the same time, John Kerry's still gonna fly around on his jet, so it's, it's yeah. rules for thee, not for me, yeah, that which it feels like, and and uh. At the end of the day, I do think the developing world has a bit of a point of, hey, you guys are driving Mm -hmm. around in Lambos and you get to go see Post Malone in concert (laughs) and all of this while I'm over here, you know, in this in this uh, in this tent burning dung for fuel. So,
0: yeah, no, I mean, I think it's a good discussion. Like I think one of the first conversations we had, I was pretty clear. I'm like, I drive a giant SUV like you know, I got to come out here like 8 Mile style and like self-docs, right? Like the shirt was like NGLs at some point. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> I, I think uh, I am well aware. I think you'll find a lot of people in the climate space are very well well aware of like how dependent we are. And I think, you know, one thing our side could do is be able to have the honesty to say like for like billions of people maybe on this planet, like fossil fuels have – enabled certain lifestyles like it has helped to extend life it's helped to make people more comfortable it's helped to make people safer like i don't think we can deny the fact that like fossil fuels have have been a great uh benefit to a lot of people now if we don't start rated hold on, raided, hold, on it, hold on yes i hope
1: i hope your wife doesn't get offended but my crush on you even grew more right there okay keep going Done. sorry okay
0: this Chuck just brought me here. Is this the Chuck wife <laughs> needs a or Chuck well, Yates needs a wife podcast ends with me uh <laughs> walking down the aisle. But no, I mean, I, I will say that with sincerity because I think if we if we just completely throw that by, you know, the wayside or deny that, then, you know, we're not being honest. And so, you know, we can say that yes, fossil fuels have benefited a lot of people. You know, there's a lot of people, it's also shortened the life. You know, I mean, I think some of the direct emissions from from burning these products have created, you know, massive problems with with air quality and water quality that, you know, we've taken a lot of steps to improve in the U.S., but, you know, still continue to persist in a lot of parts of the world. And then obviously, if we don't address climate change, there's like the big, big catastrophe around the corner. And so I don't think the solution is just to say like, yeah, we're going to get rid of all oil and gas you know, starting tomorrow, everyone has to live in caves. Everyone has to, you know, stop enjoying the things that they enjoy, I think. But the reality is, is that because we've debated the science for so long, because the oil and gas industry has until very recently really resisted being part of the solution, you know, we didn't get to start making that tra- that transition in, let's say, the 80s and the 90s when the science was becoming abundantly clear We're making the transition now, and so that is going to just have to force uh, a lot, you know, steeper cuts in emissions. It's going to force us to to take oil and gas out of the system a lot faster than I think we otherwise would have had to.
1: So, what I would think, um, because you know, we we talk around here that you can say, "Oh, big bad." governments imposing stuff on it this is actually being consumer-led i mean you know my kids they would vote tomorrow to get rid of oil and gas Mm -hmm. i always tell them just stop using it and it would (laughs) go away but they don't seem to like that answer but how much oil
0: and gas are your kids using (laughs) as much as any other american kid
1: you know (laughs) daddy drive me here daddy i'm going to the car you know um but um anyway i think i think The so this is being driven by consumers, customers, um, companies, etc., and I think the path forward actually needs to be instead of absolutes, it needs to be relatives. Hmm. So, you know, look, I get it. Green Greenpeace does want does not want a natural gas pipeline from Pennsylvania, or Ohio, or West Virginia, anywhere in the in the Appalachian basin to go to massachusetts mm-hmm. so they're, they're not going to let you go across new york they're not going to do it we had a day you know in the winter where what half of the heating in massachusetts was fuel oil yeah and we can all agree fuel oil is nasty yeah i mean even pro oil guys like <laughs> i don't want to burn fuel oil in my backyard yeah <laughs> And uh, it just, it seems like, unfortunately, both sides fight on the absolutes, mm-hmm. you know? Okay, no, we're not going to do that. And this side fights over here where it would be nice if we could just make relative trade-offs yeah. that got it somewhat better. Because, I mean, we have, you know, we've we have done whatever we've done to the population in the United States, but we have reduced emissions. And that's all been natural gas kicking coal off the mm-hmm. uh, system.
0: yeah. A couple of things. Yeah, I mean, on the Northeast stuff, yeah, it's interesting. I think the question for us is like, what choices are we locking in now for the next, you know, 10, 20, 30 years? So, building that pipeline in Massachusetts is going to lock in a ton of new natural gas into that system. Everyone who is right. involved in building that pipeline and supplying the gas has a huge incentive to make sure that there are never any new policies in Massachusetts that incentivize renewable energy or heat pumps or anything that's going to get people off natural gas. Whereas like, you know, if we took that moment, which, yeah, totally agree, no one needs to be burning fuel oil in the United States in 2023. Uh, But if that in turn ended up being, you know, a big change in, in heat pump technology or other, you know, solutions that you could have, which then lock us into a very different path for the next 10, 20, 30 years, like, I think that's where those those changes start to become really significant.
1: I I don't know that I ever actually appreciated that point, you know, because in me, in my mind, it's so obvious that that we're gonna sit there and we're we're gonna burn every hydrocarbon on the planet before it's over with. Somebody, somebody is right. I mean, just because at the end of the day, it really is the cheaper fuel source. I mean, for now, all the yeah,
0: and in some places, yeah, Yeah. that's changing, but yeah.
1: So I don't know that I'd actually appreciated that point. So that's well, kind of good to hear, but uh, yeah, no, it's just ridiculous that we're re- we're importing LNG into Massachusetts from Trinidad. <laughs> First off, we could have sent that to Europe and and helped deal with Putin. Yeah. Two, the diesel we burn in the ships to to, to get kinda, it there to yeah. get it there not not good either. Yeah, plus it kills the whales. I've told oh. you my whales story. Have I, I? no,
0: I want to hear your whales story. Okay,
1: so here's the deal. Okay, you know we we've all figured out. There's there's an amazing technology God gave us to get rid of CO2 in the air. It's called the tree, right? Mm-hmm. Almost equally as good as the whale because the whale actually winds up sequestering 30, 35 tons of carbon. And when it dies, it just goes to the bottom of the ocean, right? Yeah. The other thing is they're figuring out that about 40% of photosynthesis on the planet is done by plankton. Yep. You know what the greatest environment for plankton is? Whale shit. I mean, it really (laughs) is. And I would actually say that potentially, you know, CO2 levels going up and, um, you know, temperature following, it also inversely correlates to us having about five to six million whales on the planet down to we got a million, million, two whales on the planet now, too. And uh, unfortunately all these ships running around in the ocean are what kill baby whales. Yeah. Because they find ships very fascinating. And they go over and they talk to the ship and they usually lose that. Yeah. Boom. Yeah. Before yeah. they can uh so making whales have sex is kind of my mission. That's your big agenda here. I'm gonna Chuck yes. Eats twenty twenty four whales Wh- having sex. <laughs> sex. <laughs>
0: Uh, no, I mean the ocean stuff is interesting, and again, this is where I start to get maybe out of my depth on some of the climate science uh, stuff. I was totally stuff, out of my
1: depth on the whale thing, but you're I, I not an actual the, whale scientist. No, I'm not an actual uh, whale scientist. Yeah, but, I read an article.
0: You know, that's that's sort of the other side of all of this is like one of the biggest sequestering bodies, in addition to trees, of carbon is ocean. The ocean's sucking up massive amounts of carbon. Absent the ocean, we'd have CO2 levels that were you know way higher than we're experiencing now. The problem is that when the ocean sequesters that carbon, it's sort of like you know this energy drink. It makes it incredibly acidic, and so one of the problems we're seeing right now, which you don't even need fancy climate models to detect, you can go and just take measurements, is that ocean acidity is kind of going through the roof as it we're as the ocean's absorbing more and more carbon. That's leading to problems like coral reefs dying off. I think I told you environmentalists were like. Fun And now I'm telling you all the terrible exactly. things, but you know, coral reefs are dying off and, um, that starts to impact when you really get down to a little, little level, less the sort of plankton, but those super tiny, you know, animal, I don't know,
1: microbes, the, micro- or you know,
0: but some of them have kind of like a harder sort of shell right. and the, uh, the acidity of the, of the oceans is breaking that down, you know, so it's really cutting out the very bottom of the food chain for a lot of the oceans as a result of ocean acidification, which is going to hurt your beautiful whales. whales. They're not going to want to have sex if they're hungry. So,
1: you know. Uh, fair enough. <laughs> fair enough. The, um, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's interesting how, you know, this is all tied together. And, you know, one of the biggest things we could actually do is dam up nine rivers in China. Cause mm. Isn't that where 80% of the ocean's pollution comes from they just throw their trash in the river and it just yeah. floats out to the ocean. So yeah, no, that's uh that that's interesting. So you're now this investigative journalist. Yeah. And don't give away any deep dark secrets. Yeah. So my audience will will uh will go prepare to, to hide me. from you yeah. and all that. But what are what are some stories you've what are some stories you've written and what are some stories you're seeing?
0: Yeah. So one of the big uh things I've kind of looked at in various levels over the last couple of years is is just actually stuff you've covered really beautifully on the podcast is just the entire issue of like orphan and abandoned wells, decommissioning liabilities onshore and offshore for the oil industry. And, you know, I think especially looking for interesting case studies of where, you know, oil companies have abandoned properties to kind of help people kind of understand how, because I think it's such a big problem, like there's so many millions of wells out there, that it can become sort of a data story, a statistic story. So, just trying to find kind of cool or interesting examples of how individual people might end up bearing the cost of the industry's orphan well problem. So,
1: and I, th- you know, I think we talked, piece. I think we talked about this, but I will get on my soapbox. Yeah. And, and uh, just a little bit, by the way, of educating, you know, at the end of the day, really the abandoned well issue isn't really an abandoned well issue and how well you plugged it it's pressure Hmm. right Mm -hmm. of forcing Mm -hmm. something up and the permian basin which is the biggest producing basin god didn't put any pressure there Mm. i mean you're sucking like a fat kid (laughs) on a water burger milkshake to get oil and gas out of the ground Mm -hmm. in the permian basin and so you know that's why you have the pump jacks and all all that sort of stuff that's also why you do water floods. You're injecting yep. water, increasing the pressure, pushing it out. You do CO2 floods, same sort of thing, to push it out. So I think the biggest, the, the big, the, the nuance I would be looking for are poorly abandoned wells in areas where there's are pressure, mm, mm-hmm. and I think that's really what mm-hmm. uh, what Ashley is fighting against on yeah. Antina Ranch yep. is not that these were bad cement jobs; they probably were. Who knows? I'm not an engineer; I can't tell. Yep. It's more just that her the reservoir underneath her ranch got way over injected. I mean, mm-hmm. she's actually found the data. She she's really smart and she's got money and she went to the uh, the micro fish literally back from the 80s That's cool. and yeah. just found all of the injection going on there so they just have too much pressure there I mean the solution to that which it may be too late for is they should have been they should have drilled a couple of wells produced off as much water as they could and truck the water someplace else yeah you know and yeah. so it's it's really it's really kind of too if you don't have pressure nothing's going to come up yeah. So you want you still want a good cement job and put it yeah. all in place, but that I think that's the nuance you need to be looking no, for. No,
0: I actually think that's really a good point, and that's probably not something I've gone as deep into as like from basin to basin, you know, level where the actual like long term risks of this leading to contamination or methane or all the things that people are worrying about. I think we're more interested on just the corporate level about how like you know. There's a little bit of, like, a moral hazard problem kind of being created now where states and now the federal government are basically saying, like, look, at the end of the day, if you go belly up, if you decide to just not deal with your long-term liabilities, like, we're going to have cash available to plug that well. And, you know, a lot of that has, you know, happened with much smaller operators. So folks that, you know, went bankrupt in, in the last shale boom and bust, I don't know what, you know. Exxon and Chevron and, you know, Occidental are going to do in the long term. But you do see, you know, small examples of them challenging decommissioning orders, you know, off the California coast, off the Gulf coast. And you start to just get a sense that, you know, 20, 30, 40 years from now, are these companies really going to put their money where their mouth is and take care of these properties? And if so, what does that look like? And if not, is that me and you then, you know, footing that bill in the long term?
1: You know who I honestly think ought to pay a lot of it is Amazon. I mean, we had, no, in all seriousness, listen, hear me out on this. Hear me out on this. So, you know, we had the shale revolution. We doubled oil production in America after 30 some odd years of decline. We had cheap oil. Mm -hmm. I mean, I got fired shortly after minus $37 oil. That's right. Which you caused, I think, right? That's what I heard. Yeah. yes. It was all me, just in case. Uh, We're letting you go because of performance. (laughs) Minus 37. <laughs> what? Anyway, uh, no need to go there. Well, yeah. Um, but um, anyway, so they had, I mean, all those vans are running around because they had cheap energy. Mm-hmm. And Amazon made a lot of money during that period. And so, at least part of the benefactor hmm. of cheap oil was Amazon. So, you know, I, I've always kind of said, yes, the oil and gas company needs to do it but they also had record losses there for 10 years shouldn't the consumers yeah, pitch in on that
0: yeah you know well they're going to right like it's going to be amazon consumers via their role as a u.s taxpayer who do end up footing that bill like you know so your your dream may come true except it's not going to hurt Jeff uh, bezos the libert- the
1: libertarian it's going to hurt me yeah the libertarian <laughs> in me is just like oh gosh But uh, no, that's fair. So what else are you seeing out there?
0: Other big thing we're tracking right now is just this whole like ESG boogeyman. I don't know how much, you know, you guys have followed it or talked about it at all. But just, you know, right now there's like 30 something states that are pursuing legislation that would punish, you know, BlackRock and State Street for considering ESG. That would ban, you know, pension funds from, you know, having any environmental criteria in their fund selection. So. Uh, We've done a lot of work on that issue in particular, especially just trying to go one or two layers back of like, who are the groups that have kind of put this idea into the zeitgeist? Who's funding them? What are they, you know, how are they actually wielding influence within states and within the federal government as these proposals are being uh, considered? So it's been a big, big reporting project, like tens of thousands of like, you know, government documents, but it's been a fun one. So,
1: so, so. So, fan of Biden vetoing the legislation, I'm assuming? Yeah, I think
0: I'm a fan of it.
1: Okay, we well just yeah. checking. I, uh, I didn't want to be presumptuous, but... I mean,
0: at the end of the day, you know, ESG is two things, right? It's both a thing that is, like, very much, I think, wanted by consumers, I think, especially, like, younger generation folks, like they want to know what the the risks are of their company's investments. They, you know, want to know that their company isn't using, like, child slave labor, that they have an independent board of directors, that they're not burning trash outside their headquarters for fun. And it's also, like, completely meaningless right now. Like, there's no legal standard for ESG. So, like, you know, we could say this is, like, an ESG podcast because you, like, printed this on recycled paper. I mean, and then you could not even use real recycled paper because no one would care. No one would check. So the whole thing's just very funny to me that like there's been such a political like fracas about ESG when at the end of the day, like at least as the rules are considered right now, like it's either going to be positive because it's going to give investors and consumers better information or it's going to be kind of a nothing burger because there's not any existing standards to dictate like what ESG means.
1: Yeah, it kind of feels like the whole organic debate. You know, I mean, I guess now we've kind of at least got some sort of definition around what organic products actually are. But early days, I mean, it was just you slapped it on the product just so
0: you could say you did I mean, oil companies love ESG. I mean, I'm at this conference right now, but you read their investor reports, you go look at their proxies that are coming out this year, and the whole thing is like a love note to ESG. Like, they're all oh, we now tie 25% of our, you know, managers' compensations, ESG metrics, and we're doing this net zero thing. And they talk about how, like, in a lot of cases, it's actually enabled them to get more money on better terms when they, you know, have a plan in place to reduce methane emissions. So, you know, it's it's actually, I think, overall, probably been quite good for the oil and gas sector to be able to have this ESG branding. And yet you go into the States and they're, you know, these state legislators who are, you know, creating these bills are talking about how, like, the existence of an ESG label is, like, the only reason, like, the oil industry didn't perform throughout the 2010s, 2020s, you know, so.
1: I know, we fucked it up. Yeah, no, that was thing. all
0: your fault. You drilled too much oil.
1: <laughs> we dr- we were too good. I mean, that that actually was the problem. Right? I mean, but, we, were, we were too good.
0: Yeah, See, so.
1: Yeah, no, so. This is interesting because when the SEC is going to make mm-hmm, us mm-hmm. disclose all our emissions and all, mm-hmm. I mean, oil and gas, people just cringed at that. Oh, my gosh. I actually think that's going to be really good for us because we actually don't in, in the production of oil and gas, we don't in the way of emissions do that much. It's the use of the product. So I think yeah, we're going to wind up looking good. Amazon and all the vans and United Airlines flying the planes around. It's, it's going to shine a spotlight on. It actually is consuming. That's the issue. It's not us. I mean, we, we in the grand scheme of things, have done a really nice job of, you know, there are exceptions, but, you know, done a nice job of kind of cleaning up.
0: Yeah. No, I think the SEC role will be very good. I mean, we'll see what they end up including in that. Um, I think similar to ESG, it kind of gets hyped up as this thing that's going to you know, destroy America if companies have to report on their emissions. But, well,
1: anything the government does destroys right, America exactly. coming from the libertarian. Exactly. They keep going.
0: Uh, unless it's paying billions of dollars to clean up the industry's wells, in which case. Yeah.
1: You know?
0: <laughs> uh No, but I mean, I think I think it would be a very good thing for the industry. It would actually, like, it, you know, it would allow some differentiation between, like, operators. I think the EU is going to be way ahead of the U.S. anyway on these kinds of reporting standards. So, like, really like US companies should just be like completely on board to get this SEC rule in place and to get their data systems in place to be able to do it because they're going to have to do way more stringent reporting in the EU whether they like it or not but um no i think it i think it'll be a good uh, a good tool for you know everybody involved so i totally agree with you
1: well and i don't know that it'll be a good tool it's being forced upon us there's nothing we can do about it that being said, I would get out in front of it, mm-hmm. you know, if I was an energy company. I get my systems in place. Because one of the things, and I don't want to speak ill of my former investors, I love all my former LPs, but you asked them, okay, what does ESG mean? And kind of get these blank stares on, mm-hmm. you know, and and I always use the joke, I think it was Justice Potter that in his famous Supreme Court decision on pornography, right. I know it when I see yeah. it. You know, you kind of got that of, well, I'll know it when I see it. And so there's not a, there was not a lot of direction in mm-hmm. terms of what that actually means. And, you know, everybody in the energy business was like, oh, well, that's horrible, all this. I was like, that's the greatest thing on the planet because you get to define it. Yeah, Go in and say, well, it's obvious that it means X, Y, and Z. Yeah. And just treat it as a fact. And I thought we should have been way more proactive about it because it was going to happen. Yeah. You know?
0: Yeah. No, I, I... Yeah, it's coming. I mean, I think a lot of, you know, operators, a lot of the majors have tried to do that and embrace it and say, you know, it's, it's net zero. So that means it's carbon capture. It means it's direct air capture. It means it's reducing scope one and scope two emissions. You know, I think other operators have fought it. So I think it'll be interesting to see like as we actually get some like legal definitions around ESG, af- once we get actually some reporting guidelines in from SEC, like how that sort of changes the whole the whole landscape. Um, but I'll just say again, you know, I think you see in the filings, there's so much resistance from the oil and gas industry on the data side where they're saying, look, there's no way we could possibly calculate, you know, maybe we can calculate scope one and scope two. There's no way we can calculate scope three emissions. And yet, going back to my other point, Shell's doing that in 1988. They were calculating their scope three emissions. So it's not, you know, it's not an impossible task for industry. Um, there just needs to be the commitment to do it.
1: Well, I think I think here's here's kind of the issue from from my people is okay, yes, we can go do it. It's gonna raise our costs. Uh, it's gonna put our companies at in jeopardy. And oh, by the way, John Kerry's still gonna get gasoline from Saudi Arabia or Venezuela, and these people not doing it, yeah, and we're gonna be out of business. Yeah. That 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 I think that I think is a fair argument back of, hey, 'Cause we are doing it cleaner than the rest of the world. You yeah. know, I mean, us in Canada did do it really well in terms of being clean. And if the flip side was so long as we're gonna use this stuff, we might as well make it happen here and let's go put Venezuela, Saudi Arabia and the other folks out of business. Mm-hmm. I think you would have more buy-in. But unfortunately it's hey, we're gonna get rid of y'all, but we're just going we're gonna use the same barrel and they're dirtier in yeah. other places of the world.
0: I think the thing for me on like the whole is it supply is it demand question is that like it assumes the u s oil and gas industry is just an economic actor, and they've never just been an economic actor, like especially when you talk about the super majors, you know they're not just doing a business, right they have some or have had at least some of the most sophisticated you know lobbying advertisement front group political machines. That any industry has ever had in american history. and so they're not just producing oil and producing oil cleaner or dirtier for customers who want it or don't. they've also worked to set the political, you know, stage so that as a country like we've moved much more slowly than we otherwise would have towards electric vehicles and renewables and things that would actually like reduce demand. so i think when the oil industry says, "oh, it's just the consumer like we're just supplying a demand. There's a way in which they've also created the demand by suppressing alternatives over the last 10, 20, 30 years. And so, you know, I'm not saying that means, you know, we need to get rid of Exxon tomorrow, but I think it does mean that we have to realize like they're not just operating as a business in this country either.
1: Okay. Can I put my tinfoil hat on about electric vehicles? Okay. So We know the carbon footprint of an internal combustion engine, right? We've been building those things for 125 years. We can measure it to the nth degree, exactly what they – I don't think anybody disputes those numbers. Everybody agrees on what that is. Do we truly know Mm. the carbon footprint of an electric vehicle? And I think the answer to that is not really, but Volvo actually did a deep dive on it, and they put it on their website. You can go Volvo.com, pull it up. And the punchline to their report, and I tried to read it one night, and I used it to fall asleep for about a month. Uh, I never really got through it, but the punchline is: dependent on how you're generating the electricity, the fuel source, Mm -hmm. it's anywhere from like seventy thousand miles to ninety thousand miles. I think Mm -hmm. ninety thousand miles is, you know, worldwide average of electrical generation, and maybe seventy thousand miles is Europe. Because Europe mm-hmm. generally has more renewables than we do. Right? Is that
0: sort of before it has a better emissions profile than a internal combustion? Is that the... Well, that?
1: it's the break over the break. Point, okay, Yeah. And, and I think they, they've been all encompassing and they've gone, all right, you need these special metals. So you're burning diesel because mm-hmm. unfortunately in the middle of the Congo, you can't plug into an electric socket. You burn diesel to mine and... And I think they, as best I can tell, and from people I respect, they say they've done a pretty good job. Mm-hmm. So seventy to thousand, seventy thousand to ninety thousand miles, most cars run more than that. So it is better. Yeah. So electric, but is it worth trillions and trillions of dollars for that increment better? Because what we did in the IRA is historically the U.S. government, with its big bully club, would say we want this. But it would let the market go figure things out. The IRA actually came in and, and said, no, we want electric vehicles, period. We're going to give credits for it and all this. Mm-hmm. Didn't say, hey, if you can make gasoline after, out of natural gas and the emissions are less, we'll, we'll give you the same credits. So they went, no, it's electric vehicles. Here's why I think they did it. This all is right. the tenfold. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, I want to so hear
1: So here's why they've done it. If you switch from internal combustion engines, how do we pay taxes right now? We pay taxes cents per gallon when we buy, when we buy our gasoline, right? Yeah. You go fill up, the state does it, the federal government does it, that's their money. They don't know where we drive. When we go to electric vehicles and there's no longer cents per gallon of gasoline, they're going to come out and say, well, we need to tax you. And the most obvious, easiest way to tax you is per mile driven. Mm. That would make sense. Everybody would kind of go, huh, OK. Oh, by the way, guess what we're going to need to do? We need to track you so we can mm. follow the miles driven. And I know they track I was going to say,
0: they're already tracking me right now.
1: But at least at this point, they've got to go get a judge order before mm. they go where Chuck gets did. And not that our judges are robust in the defense of my civil liberties, yeah. but. A judge has to sign off on it. Yeah. They are going to normalize having a tracker in your car so that they can follow wherever we go. And that's why they've gone all in. And in the IRA, there's actually a $25 million pilot program for trackers. For trackers? Yes. That is why we're doing electric vehicles. You figured it it out, man. It's not that much better for the environment.
0: You know, I have no comment on the tracker thing I'll, but i'm gonna like look forward to watching some great youtube videos about that later tonight um but yeah i mean on the EV thing i'll i'll be totally honest like i don't i don't know the math um some of the studies i've i'm like recalling um shows there's some like better gains than that but i trust that the one you read is is legit well
1: and it was volvo and they published yeah, it yeah so, and i don't know if it's tried or wrong yeah yeah and, and, I, and I drove like I'm like pro electric vehicles. I drove pretty a cool. Tesla for 6 years. It was a badass Very car. Cool I mean my guys, car's yeah. my kids are still like daddy I miss the Tesla. Yeah. Uh, it was really cool and all. My my whole problem is we just haven't had the discussion about it. Is yeah. that cuz I mean at the end of the day I think like the issue and you and I've talked about this. The issue I really have is we just can't have a thoughtful discussion
0: yeah. about it. Well, cuz yeah, I'm, I'm not thoughtful. opposed
1: to electric vehicles. I'm just like do we go trillions of dollars on that or do we give that trillions of dollars to India and say, please don't build any more coal Mm. plants. We'll send you as much natural gas as you want. And here's a trillion dollars Mm -hmm. to go build your infrastructure. I actually think that might be a better approach. Yeah, It doesn't feel like we can have that discussion. Not me and you, but just globally. No,
0: I mean, I think that's true to the discussion point. I mean, I think that's true about everything right now. Like there's so little space to have a real discussion about any issue. I mean, we could have this podcast about, you know, 12 other issues we probably disagree on and it would get us like yeah. both canceled, you know, overnight from our respective parties. So,
1: me and the Me and know. the British girlfriend got into it last night about Colin Powell. But anyway, so to your point. <laughs> I want to know what that's about. To, 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 to <laughs> were your you point, celebrating
0: yeah. the uh, Iraq war anniversary or?
1: <laughs> uh, no, we were talking the Iraq yeah. war. And she kept bashing Bush. And okay. I'm like, time out. I, I agree the war was a bad thing. You know, but I will say it was not Bush. It was all of us. Mm -hmm. I mean, sixty percent of the Democrats in the U.S. Senate voted for it. Forty percent of the Democrats in the House voted for it. Seventy-two percent of the Americans uh, supported it when it happened. So it was all of us. We all made a bad decision. It was not just you know George Bush making the bad decision.
0: I was uh, not among that actually. When I, when that was going on, this is a random detour, but I, around the time the Iraq war protests were gearing up, I was studying abroad in London and I'd like fallen into a sort of an anarchist commune by accident. So they had like,
1: they had occupied
0: this like building in downtown London and it was kind of being used as a staging ground for, you know, a bunch of anti-war protesters so I was part of the cooking collective, which was basically us taking like dumpster diving ingredients and a like ben cooking Dipper. them into You're stews. Yes, exactly. Uh, but yeah, no, I was out there. I remember what year that was like, two thousand four, maybe for like a huge march where we had like occupied the student union and we all slept there overnight and it was freezing. And uh, th- we had built a tank in a basement of this guy's house in Brixton out of an old uh, bed frame, and then marched around the street with a very horrible looking tank uh anyway, so it's not me. you could take me out <laughs> of your equation of everybody
1: well i mean the, the 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 simple matter of fact is the United States got attacked yes. for the first time, and we were scared, and Saddam Hussein was actually pretending that he had nuclear weapons to hold Iran at bay mm-hmm. and so the stuff we saw him moving stuff around all that satellite surveillance that we went to the u n to? I think we actually believed
0: hmm. that
1: there was a nuclear bomb in there or certain people did, or it was, you know, we ignore that at our own peril. Mm-hmm. Holy cow. What if he actually really does have it? I do think it would have been healthier for someone to say, you know, Hey, we need more evidence than this before we're going to get do this. Yeah. You know, I do have a funny story, not a funny story, but a story about the first Iraq war. So I was in Las Vegas and it was call it three or four weeks before the offensive was mm-hmm. was launched and me and my ex-wife were sitting at a table with all these naval fighter pilots and it was like three in the morning and they were there like and they basically kind of fessed up hey this like a is last our, hurrah this is our last hurrah and then we're being shipped out to iraq and all this and I knew Saddam Hussein did not have a shot in the first Gulf War because those guys were like hitting 18 and getting a three. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it was like double down. Okay, boom. Yeah. So I, I had no worries about us winning the first <laughs> war after <laughs> hanging out with those guys because they were all so badass. But uh, uh,
0: It's a long long digression from uh, from energy stuff, but yeah. yeah
1: no. So let's do this. Let's yeah. close up okay. on this. Um, one thing from you that I have to go back and tell my side and convince that your intentions are honorable and all oh, that. Geez. What is what is that one thing you want me to go back and do?
0: Yeah. I think uh, the big thing would be I have no beef with oil workers. I have no beef with Chuck Yates. Like, I think there are a lot of really great people who work in the industry, energy industry who are doing very good work, at times very physically demanding, thankless work. Like, I do expect that every morning when I wake up, my lights are going to work and then I'm going to be able to get ga- gas for my car and I know that is because of the work that people in the oil and gas industry do. And so that it, I have no problem with with anybody in this industry. I think where all of my concern lies where I think the ire of the climate movements, you know, lies is with, you know, really sort of C-suite executives who over the past 40 years have made Americans believe that there's a real debate around climate change. With block solutions, municipal, state, federal, international level, and have made it so much harder to address this problem than it should be. So that now we are forced into this need for a rapid, dramatic decarbonization of our entire economy over an incredibly short timeline that's going to be really, really hard and way harder than it ever had to be because of the decisions they were making throughout my lifetime. So um, you know, hopefully just seeing the distinction between, between those two levels and recognizing that like, you know, most people in the climate movement are like me. Hopefully they don't take themselves too seriously. Uh, hopefully they're willing to have conversations. If you want to ever talk, like if anyone wants to DM me, if anyone wants to talk about this stuff, you can like make fun of my glasses. I don't know, whatever you want to do, just come, come talk to me because, you know, I do think there, there are a lot of great people in this industry who want to see change. And I think it, it just sucks that they're, being held back by a lot of leadership and have been held back by leadership.
1: So it's interesting because you and I have kind of had that, uh, that discussion before. And I think the way I've, I've actually done some preaching on my side is, um, you know, you, you get on my side, oh, they're trying to put us out of work. They're trying to do all that. And I go, you know what? They actually feel like they need to fight that hard and quote unquote fight dirty and it's not because they really believe that the world's going to end tomorrow if we don't get rid of it. It's just they don't trust us. And I, and I do think that's kind of on us. I yeah. don't think we've necessarily been the uh, the best actors. And what's really interesting, kind of bring it back to um, Chuck Yates needs a wife. Yeah, the, It's coming. We've shot like six hours of stuff. I've been editing wow. all this. It'll come out at, at some yeah. point. But it was really interesting. So me and the girlfriend, uh, the backdrop on that story is – You know, she broke up with me after we've gone out six months. She's like, I don't even think you like me. I don't think you care, you know, all this. And so, may or may not have been clinically depressed in 2022. I I like to phrase it as there was no consequence to my inaction, right? Yeah. I didn't put out a podcast. Nobody really cared. You know, I half assed that roast. I did. We still raised a million dollars. So, that was the first time I kind of had that, uh, a, a consequence. So, I went and thought about it. And that's what, the serious side of Chuck Yates needs a wife is going to be telling that story. But one of the things that's interesting about that is you realize that you get into in relationships, you get into these cycles where I'm reacting to you, you're reacting to me. And what the psychologist will tell you is the only way to break those cycles is one person goes first Mm -hmm. and changes the environment uh, such that the negative behavior of this person is no longer present and then this person doesn't react what's interesting about that dynamic is it can't just happen on one day yeah because this person will go oh my gosh this is so much better behavior but it's uncertain and uncertain is just bad and it generally takes three to six months for the person to accept the new behavior of the one trying to break the cycle. Mm-hmm. And so that's why it's so hard as, you know, couples walk in and if you are just being blunt as a couples counselor, it's like, all right, who's going to go first? Yep. And it's going to suck. I mean, you're going to stop all your bad behavior and it might even get worse from your spouse, mm. you know, or your, or your partner and all that. And so. It's interesting. So, so me and the girlfriend have kind of gone through that knock on wood. I think we've broken the cycle. I chose to go first. Yeah. Uh, Cause she's really special and all that. But it's almost like we need to do that. Yeah. The oil and gas business and the environmentalists need to do it. And someone almost has to go first uh, so that the other side accepts, okay, there is better behavior on that side.
0: Yeah. Can you, can you go first again on that? That'd be great. You got more money, I think. You got more power. You can go first yeah. and then, you know.
1: You've got, you've got the narrative. You've got all the people behind you. Yeah. So you should go first. I mean,
0: a lot of blood, sweat, and tears to get the people behind us, right? Like, it, you know. But yeah, I, I think it'll be interesting, right? Because we are at this place where you do see a lot of oil companies now claim that they're like, you know, we're in it. We're climate partners, right? They're, they're talking the talk. And I think the response from us right now is like, we'll see. Like, we've seen you talk that talk before, but, like, you know, and I think that's why having some firm language on ESG matters, having these SEC disclosures matters is because, like, we need to see beyond the pledges, beyond the headlines, belong the, beyond the flashy sides, slides at the conferences. Like, what is the level of commitment from this industry to actually make a change? Because If you're really dug into it, like you're talking about managed decline, right? And no, I don't know what industry voluntarily enters into managed decline in human history.
1: Certainly not the climate movement. (laughs) No, did I say that? Oh, I'm sorry. I I have like three viewers left watching the podcast at this point, so So we can we can wrap up. That was for Uh, you guys.
0: No, yeah, I'm just saying. I I think, um, yeah, my big takeaway is hopefully like. Seeing me here, I'm not definitely not scary. Uh, I'm definitely not, you know, too, no, you're cool. too pretentious about anything. So it's like, yeah, if people want to reach out and, like, talk climate stuff, talk energy stuff, talk solutions, like, you know, leak a story to me, like, great. Like, I, I am always willing to really talk to anybody um, because, like, I have a massive amount to learn from the oil industry to be able to do my job well and, and hopefully vice versa. So You know what
1: I'd love to do? and maybe we could actually do this and we could do podcasts about it, is let's go find one example of something that's bad. And I don't know what that bad is. Yeah, but, yeah. but something small enough where you could go research it, mm. I could go research it, and we come up with a joint solution. You go sell your side, I'll go sell my cool. side, and let's see if we could fix it. Love it. it. We'll is see. that a river or whatever? You know, just something. Yeah. I'll do that.
0: Yeah. You could start with a cleaning up your beard a little bit or
1: you know. <laughs> a long, way to long way to go on that. You know, no, that'd
0: be great. I'd love to do that.
1: It's uh, it's so funny. So I go get coffee every morning in the small town I live in Joseph's coffee shop. And the old guys sit over at the, uh, at the table and I walk in and one of them's always like, you know, we could start a GoFundMe and get you a razor. <laughs> you you really got holes in your pants. <laughs> And uh, I always joke, I go, you know, someone tweeted out the other day, Yates spends a lot to look this crap. Right. He yeah, really does. Yeah. So. That's a
0: that's a Dolly Parton I think Catalan. It takes a lot of money to look this trashy. To <laughs> look so. this trashy, mm-hmm. yeah.
1: Somebody else tweeted out, you don't dress for the job you have, you dress for the job you want. <laughs> Yates took that shit to heart. So I wanted to be a 90s angsty teen. That's just kind of my jam.
0: <laughs> Kelly, awesome. you were
1: cool to come on. Yeah. No, and it's I'm, nice to meet you in person. It's
0: good to meet you too. Don't, you know. Maybe EFT won't be too mean to me on the back end of this, but our remains to be seen.
1: <laughs> Good luck with that. I'll be right there with you. They're yeah. Not, they, can, they can be a little fickle.
0: Yeah. So. Uh, but no, this was super cool. Thanks for having me on. Cool. Yeah.